Many of you are ashamed and grieved over the state of our nation and what the political atmosphere has created, what it's uncovered, and what do you think is being written, what is being recorded as God looks at America? What do you think God is thinking? What is he thinking about you? See, when God looks at America, he also looks at us. And all that we've seen and heard for many years that's brought such shame and grief to our heart, God will come and visit us. But I want to tell you today, that he will first come to visit his church. And I want to tell you how you can prepare for God's visitation. And that it's not sufficient that we are grieved in our hearts and that we feel ashamed about what we see our beloved nation, where it's going and who we are becoming as a people and as a nation under God. Please go with me to Psalm 32, and I'll begin at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night, Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, when we see all that's going on, we're grieved, we're embarrassed, but that's our lifestyle as a nation. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who feel so grieved over America, first stop and ask the question, is God also grieved when he looks at my life? What are the angels recording as they come visiting you day after day, hoping that as God's hand is heavy upon you, as you go about your day, the way is blocked before you. Things aren't happening the way you want them to. And you feel the burden of how you've lived and how you've walked. Know that God's hand is heavy on you. David says that his bones wasted away through my groaning, through my roaring all day long. God was taking away his strength because God was trying to get his attention. As you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit coming after you, Your life is being sapped. 
you're in distress, don't push the Holy Spirit away. Acknowledge your sin before God and confess. You know, oftentimes when a mother has kids and she's introducing them to people for the first time, she calls them up one by one and she says, this is Johnny. This is my firstborn. This is the second one. This is the third one. And she names the kids she birthed. You have to go before God and do the same thing. And say, Jesus, this is my sin. And name them. One by one. And say, Lord, these are the things I have created. This is what I've done. This is where my identity lie. And say, Lord, there's no peace in that. I feel ashamed at what I've created, where I've been, what I've touched, what I've handled. That's what you begin to do before God comes and visits us as a nation. I'll read another scripture for you, taken from 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. And I'll begin, begin reading from the latter part of verse 9. Because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Says you begin to respond to God's sorrow in your heart and you begin to name the sins and to say, Lord, this is what I've done. Come and make me whole. There's an earnestness within you to see that sin removed to, even to the very depths of your soul. And you want God to bring justice on the sin and remove it and to make you innocent. I want to encourage you and challenge you today to take a deep look at where you are, what the sorrow is producing. And if you're really pleading that Jesus would bring innocence into your heart and into your mind. And as the innocence comes, and as the joy comes, I know that the angels will be recording. This one has found favor with God. When you've overcome your sin, you're in such a sweet place to have such compassion and mercy and crying out for America. Because then you will say, Lord, we have sinned. I have walked this way. And then you can stand in your rightful place as a priest interceding for America and saying, Lord, don't judge us that we may die, but come and bring your judgment and remove the sin. That's how we prepare for God's visitation. The doors of our church are open today that we may come before God and plead before him, first for our own lives and then for America. This is who the National Prayer Chapel is, and I welcome you today.
The message today is unspotted by the world. Unspotted by the world. As Americans, we are so convinced that we know reality. And then something will enter into our our vision that just baffles us. We've only had aluminum manufacturing for a couple hundred years. And yet, in a dig, I believe it was Bulgaria, they discovered a piece of aluminum that was shaped like a shovel, and it's many thousands of years old. And it's evident that at some point, the human race lost its understanding of technology and production. If you go to Egypt, you will see reliefs thousands of years old. And on those reliefs, you'll see a picture of a helicopter, an airplane, a spaceship. When did we lose our technology? It's obvious that we have a very slight understanding of the history of this earth and of the peoples who've lived on this earth. Is the earth 6,000 years old? We're pretty clear it's thousands of years old, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years old. But that man was created after the earth was already there. If you look carefully at Genesis, the first chapter, pretty clear that there can be quite an extensive period of time between the creation of man and the creation of the physical earth. There's much we don't understand. How do we begin to wrap our minds around all of this? But likewise, in the midst of all of this is the recognition that we really have very little understanding about who God is. The reason Jesus Christ came to the earth as God was to destroy the devil's work. What was his work? to cause us to think that we could ascend with him and become gods, that out of the lust of our heart and the darkness of our spirit, we would become God, and we would displace the creator God. Jesus came, the scriptures say, to destroy the devil and his works and those who sided with him. It's difficult to make the decision in America's culture to understand that you either side with darkness or you side with the light. You either side with Satan or you side with God, with Jesus Christ. You cannot side with both. And we as Americans are very pluralistic and we want to be understanding and we want to side over here. We want to hang with darkness and we want to hang with God. Can't do it. We can't hang with both. But because we have cell phones and computers and every other device to distract our attention from eternity, our eternity has shrunk until it's smaller than the size of this room. Our understanding of reality is an automobile. I watched this morning as I drove here, and I had to smile. This young guy drove up beside me. I don't know what caused him to do it, but he came roaring up in this beautiful, brand new, shiny pony car. And I'm driving along in my little 1996 Corolla, and he's sitting there gunning it. 
while he's looking over at me and smiling. And I give him a thumbs up and he lays rubber. He was the man. I mean, everybody understands the power of a, of a brand new, shiny, red Ford Mustang. Which of us guys have not at some point longed to sit in that seat? That's our, our reality is created by the little tiny physical realm of our flesh. And we've got to get beyond that and begin to understand that we are not flesh men. We are spirit men and women. And that the eternity is before us. And the decision must be made, will we side with that which will burn or that which will be eternal? You see, I'm not too excited about that Ford Mustang because I've seen too many in the junkyard crushed, rusted, buckets of nothing to be reprocessed into another shiny Ford Mustang. If I were going to go for a car, I'd probably go for a Lamborghini. I mean, if I'm going to go for something, let's go for something that's really hot and costs $250,000. No, this physical realm does not do it for us. We can dupe ourselves with car fever and think that that's going to do it for us and that'll make us a man. Or we can say the house will make us a man. Or we can say the wife will be our crowning glory. None of it works. None of it works. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the early 1900s, there was a Jewish man, extremely wealthy, half owner of one of the largest department stores in Pittsburgh. At the turn of the century, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was a steel manufacturing town. It was a tough, rough town. It was filled, though, with very wealthy people who were making great money. And the workers in the factories were making good money. It was like the Detroit of the past years. People were making good salaries. American steel was in demand around the world. The factories lit the night sky until you've seen the sky over a a steel plant. And until you've heard the roar As the steel is poured and you see the men glistening with sweat standing. I've walked through those plants as a boy. Youngstown, Ohio. Watched as men in heavy clothing with big gloves. Handling that great pot of boiling iron. As they poured it into the forms. This wealthy Jewish man. Had a hungry heart. And he was invited to go hear a preacher. He was resistant because he's Jewish, but he was an agnostic Jew. But he went and he listened. And that night, the Holy Spirit pierced his heart and converted him. And the next day, he went to his plush office that he shared with his brother. He didn't realize the the impact of his saying to his brother, I have become a follower of Jesus Christ. And his brother said, you remember the will. No, what do you mean? Dad put in his will that if we left the Jewish faith and became Christians, we would be disowned and we would lose our inheritance. If you persist, brother, in being a Christian, you are fired. And you lose your inheritance. 
millions of dollars. He struggled for some days over this question. And he finally went back to his brother and he said, Brother, Jesus Christ left heaven. He lost everything. And he went to that cross for me. How can I not give up a few worldly dollars? I will follow Jesus. And he was kicked out. He lost his home. He lost everything. He was homeless. The Christian brothers and sisters took pity on him. He also lost his wife, who said, I will not be married to a Christian. I won't tell you the whole story, but the wonderful part of the story is that his wife came to a camp meeting where she knew he was speaking and listened to him preach. And she came to him after the service, and she said, if you'll still have me as your wife, I will come back with you if you will forget this foolishness of preaching. If you will just come and live as a normal Christian man, I will come back with you. And he answered her, I have a fire that burns in my heart. I cannot give up preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she got up and walked out. Sometime later, she humbly came to him again and said, be whatever you have to be, I love you. And she became a faithful Christian follower and aided him in the work of preaching the gospel. It was to this man that a young 20-something boy, not yet grown up, after money he could earn in America, in one day, what it would take him a week working in the coal mine in Wales. So he came to America. He wanted money. Oh, he would have said, I'm a Christian. He lived a godly life. But he was going to go where the money was because he wanted lifestyle. His father was a coal miner. He didn't want to be like his dad. The bright lights. Pittsburgh called him. So he worked in the factory. And then he went to listen to this Jewish man preach. And his heart was pierced. And he became a serious Christian. And he returned home. The Welsh revival in 1904 was in full swing. I've talked with a man who was a part of that Welsh revival quite a few years ago. He's gone now to his reward. But he said to me, never experienced anything like the Welsh revival. He said when he would approach the church, there would be unbelievers on their faces in the dirt, in their best clothing, weeping because the power of God had fallen on them before they even got to hear the preacher preach. And he would go to them one by one and urge them to rise up and take courage and come into the meeting and let the Holy Spirit wash them by the blood of Jesus. 
Reese Howells came back to that Welsh revival in 1904. Now, I've shared this story a number of times. You've read the book, Reese Howells, The Intercessor. But I read it again this week. I've read it so many times. I've, the pages are coming out of the book. Next to the Bible, this book has had more of an impact on my life than any other single book. The only one that would even come close to this is a book that Brother Ed gave to me a number of years ago, The Sinning Christian. Those two books have had a profound impact in shaping what the National Prayer Chapel is today. I want to read parts of this for you because there is a key part that we need to get a hold of. It's a part that I missed many times as I read through this story. He's planning on going to a, to a special meeting where everyone is gathering. And as he's preparing to go there, he attends a meeting and a, a woman stands up to read the scripture and she stutters. She can't speak very well. So she reads the scripture very slowly. And as she reads it slowly, it begins to sink into his heart. She could only read very slowly, which gave time for each word to sink in. Predestined, justified, glorified. As Reese listened, he said to himself, I know I am predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. Just stop quickly. There's a Calvinistic predestination that means only a select few are called. That's not what he's referring to. He does not believe that. The predestination of Scripture is that at the cross, the atonement was made unconditionally. But the atonement and the benefits are two separate things. The atonement is made for us but we must cooperate with God if the benefits are going to accrue to us. If I go to the bank today and I I deposit $1 million in Alex's name, does that money belong to her? Yes, in one sense it does belong to her. But if she never goes to the bank and never writes a check on that account of what value is it to her, She has to cooperate with the rules of banking if she is going to use the resources that have been deposited in her name. Jesus has deposited in your account the fullness of all that you need to enter into salvation. But if you do not cooperate and meet the conditions for that atonement to be applied to your life, you will go to hell because you never met the conditions for those benefits to accrue to you. I remember a number of years ago, I read the strangest account in the Washington Post. There was a man who was well-known downtown in Washington, D.C. as a beggar. He was a good beggar. He knew how to get the money out. He knew how to sit and how to walk and how to look pathetic and to cause people to say, i got to help this man. He pulled the same thing going into restaurants, digging through their garbage, and restaurant owners began to have compassion on him and they would 
They would give him free meals. But every winter he would disappear. And they would ask him, where have you been? And he would say, I went to the warmer climate. Well, the man died. And when the will was read, he was a multimillionaire. And to each of the restaurant owners that had given him, he returned with interest. He gave gifts all over Washington, D.C., and the Post was absolutely astonished. He preferred the life of a beggar while he would spend his summers in luxury on the intercoastal waterway. When we come to Jesus Christ, we cannot prefer the beggar life and expect to go to the mansion above. Doesn't work that way. This man recognizes that he has not been glorified. He has no idea what that means. It puzzled him, and the question was constantly in his mind, what does it mean to be glorified? Two days later, on the train headed to the meeting, a voice spoke to him, when you return, you will be a new man. But I am a new man, he protested. No, came the answer, you're a child. The others in the carriage were singing the newest songs of the revival. Reese never heard it. Instead, he kept pacing the corridor with a voice ringing in his ears, You will be a new man. Now, please understand what Reese Howes is going to address for us. I've made a decision. I will tell people I am a Christian, but I'm still a child, immature, never grown up. The grow-up doesn't come until the Holy Spirit comes and removes from us the sin, the sin nature. It's not enough to be a child in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to simply say, okay, I'll be a Christian and then hang with darkness. There has to be an utter leaving of the darkness behind and an entering into Jesus Christ. I don't know how to help you move beyond simply hearing my words and intellectually understanding, but not walking in it in the reality of tomorrow. See, what you do here today only matters if it affects what you do tomorrow. If you go back to your sin tomorrow, of what benefit has this worship service been to you? of no benefit. The reality is what we do, what we say, what we think, the way we function. And if Jesus can't come and remove that and bring us up to manhood and womanhood, then we try to enter the kingdom of God hanging on the world in the darkness and hanging on Jesus. It doesn't work. So I'm going to share with you the process that he went through. I want to also just add he comes to a new understanding of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is not a divine influence. The Holy Spirit is a person, just as Jesus was a person. But he needs a body to live in. He wants your body to live in. He wants to live in your body. But he won't move in if you don't move out. 
Now, this is the issue. We want Jesus to come and walk with us. He's not interested. He wants us to go with him. He wants us to walk with him. He wants intimacy with us. He wants our eyes focused on his love and his grace and his mercy to go and do and be what he does through us and in us. The meeting with the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, and ghost in Old English simply means guest, holy guest. The holy guest was just as real to Reese Howells in his meeting with his Savior as those years before. I saw him as a person apart from flesh and blood, and he said to me, as the Savior had a body, so I dwell in the cleansed temple of the believer. I am a person. I am God. I am come to ask you to give your body to me, that I may work through it. I need a body for my temple. And you may want to jot down some scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. But he went on, it must belong to me without reserve, for two persons with different wills can never live in the same body. Will you give me yours? Romans 12, 1 and 2. But if I come in, I come in as God, and you must go out. Colossians 3, 2 and 3. I shall not mix myself with yourself. He made it very plain that he would never share my life. I saw the honor he gave me in offering to indwell me, but there were many things very clear to me that I knew he would not keep, not even keep one of them. Now let's stop a minute. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to allow him to make you a man or a woman. He wants to dwell in your body. You have to move out. How do you move out? You move out by renouncing the right of control over your life. So now this afternoon when I leave this house, in every instance my decision must be based on not what would Jesus do. That's not the question. The question is, am I doing what I'm doing for Jesus and his kingdom? The only interest Jesus has is what I am willing to do for him and his kingdom. Or is it, this is for me. Jesus, step back a little bit. I want to do this for me. I want this possession for me. I want this relationship for me. I want this, whatever it is, for me. Then you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And in that case, you're still an infant with Jesus. And you're either going to grow up into Jesus or you're going to grow up into the devil. And that decision will be based on whether or not You do what he wants you to do, or you do what Jesus wants you to do. And part of what struck me so powerfully as I was reading this material again is that he has not come to share with me in my life. He's asked me to come and share in his life with him. 
Why does a man struggle when death comes? He says, I have received a sentence of death as really as a prisoner in the courtroom. I had lived in my body for 26 years. How could I easily give it up? Well, I've lived in my body for many years, more than 26. How do I give up my body? And say, Jesus, have the rule over me. Almost everything we do in America is done instinctually. We say, this is what I ought to do. This is my intuition. This is, I know I got to do this. I've got to take this phone call. I've got to go here. I've got to, I got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. Our lives are full of all that we have to do. And Jesus is saying, I want your body. You're not going to do that anymore if you follow me. If you will let me come and have your life, I will take it. And I will dwell in your body. And you will become my servant. In the book of Jude, the first chapter, just a word about who Jude was. Jude was the brother of Jesus and the brother of James. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. Jude was another half-brother of Jesus. Now, it's clear that Jude was very close with the apostle Peter. Peter was probably the one who brought Jude to Jesus. Much of the material in the book of Jude is simply a repeating of what Peter has said in 2 Peter. Now, I also learned in this that Sodom and Gomorrah were still smoking. The fires of Sodom and Gomorrah were, were still burning. Philo, the Hellenistic Greek Jewish philosopher who laid the foundation of philosophical thought between Judaism and Christianity, wrote in his writings that the fires were still burning, and, and he thought it was a sign that Sodom and Gomorrah was an entrance into hell because nobody could remember a time when Sodom and Gomorrah was not burning. It had been burning for centuries. Philo was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. A Jude, out of his background, speaks about the burning eternally. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our sovereign and Lord. So Jude is saying, look, there's a problem in the Christian church and it's coming because people are slipping in and saying we do not have to give up our bodies for the Lord God of heaven to dwell in. We can own ourselves, and we can still follow Jesus. It's the grace changers of our culture today who say, oh, you can never stop walking in sin, but in your spirit you're with Jesus. It's Gnostic teaching, it's a lie. And this man, Reese Howells, is facing this right up front. He has to deal with this reality that he's going to have to give up with an unconditional surrender his life to Jesus Christ. 
Now, you know what's so dangerous? Every one of you has taken the word I've spoken so far. And you know right now in your heart, if you are saying, no, I will not give up all of my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Or, you know what, preacher, I'm going to give everything to Jesus and ask him to come and dwell in me. I'm going to give him everything. I'm done. I'm done with the wickedness. I'm done with the fornication. I'm done with the drugs. I'm done with lusting after stuff. I am going to go all the way with Jesus. Just hearing the words so far, you've had to face, have I given my life to be filled and controlled by Jesus, or am I a holdout? And some of you recognize you're a holdout, and you're convicted in your heart, and you're saying, I'm going to have to think about this. I'm going to have to process this. And some of you today are going to make a decision that will either take you to heaven or some of you it will take to hell. That scares me. Part of me doesn't want to be responsible for causing you to make that choice. I'd rather hold it in abeyance that later you might make the choice to follow Jesus. But unfortunately, in the preaching of the gospel, every time you hear it, it confronts you. Are you on your way to heaven or are you on your way to hell? And it has to be consciousness, awareness. He says, I had received a sentence of death. I'd lived in my body 26 years. Could I easily give it up? Who could give up his life to another in an hour? Why does a man struggle when it comes to death if it's easy to die? I knew that the only place fit for the old nature was on the cross. Paul makes that very plain in Romans, the sixth chapter. But once this is done in reality, it is done forever. I could not run into this. I intended to do it, but oh, the cost. I wept for days. Why would he weep? Because he was facing the reality of giving up his life utterly, totally, and completely to Jesus Christ. He says, I lost seven pounds in weight. He was a bodybuilder, guys. He lifted weights every day. Oh, how I wish I'd never seen it. Since Jesus died for me, I had to die in him. And I knew that the new life was his and not mine. It took me five days to make the decision. Days which were spent alone with God. Like Isaiah, I saw the holiness of God. And I saw my own utterly corrupt nature. It wasn't sins that I saw, but nature touched by the fall. I was corrupt to the core. I knew I had to be cleansed. Do you understand? When he's saying I, I was being offered the choice to be glorified, he's saying I was being offered the choice to utterly be out of my sinful nature, to be washed and made clean. He would not take a superficial answer. He put his finger on each part of my self-life, and I had to decide in cold blood. He could never take a thing away until I gave my consent. Then the moment I gave it, some purging took place. Isaiah 6, 5-7. through And I could never touch that thing again. 
It was not saying I was purged and the thing still had a hold on me. No, it was a breaking and the Holy Spirit taking control. Day by day, the dealing went on. He was coming in as God and and I had lived as a man. And what is permissible to an ordinary man, he told me, would not be permissible to me. The first thing he had to deal with was the love of money in his heart that had taken him to America. The Lord told him that he would take out of his nature all taste for money and ambition for ownership of money. I had to consider what that meant. Money would be of no more value to me than it was to John the Baptist or to the Savior. To an extent, this was dealt with in my new birth, but now the Holy Spirit was getting at the root. It took an entire day. Now, just to fast forward, he no longer loved money. And now God could trust him with money. And literally millions of dollars passed through this man's hand for the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he never lusted after it. He also dealt with the reality that he would not be able to choose his own wife. That God would choose his wife. He also dealt with the issue of ambition. How could he have any of it if the Holy Spirit came in? The way the Lord showed him was like this. Suppose he had a mission down and another mission opened in the same place. If there was jealousy between the two and it was better for the town to only have one mission, then he would have to close his mission. Or that if he and another man We're going for the same job. He would have to back out and let the other man have the job. Or if he was earning 12 shillings a day and another man with a family was earning much less, the Holy Spirit had the right to tell him to give his job to the other man. On the fifth day, his reputation was touched. As he was thinking of the men of the Bible who were full of the Holy Spirit, particularly John the Baptist, The Lord said to him, Then I may live through you the kind of life I lived through him, a Nazarite clothed in camel's hair living in a desert. Even in this or what might be its modern equivalent, a decision had to be made. If I live my life in you, the Holy Spirit said, and this is the kind of life I choose, you cannot stop me. As the Savior was despised, you must be willing to be the same. The Holy Spirit said to him, On no account will I allow you to cherish a single thought of self, and the life I will give you will be 100% for others. You will never be able to save yourself any more than the Savior could when he was on the earth. Now, are you willing? Are you willing? That night a friend said to him, Would you come and talk to us about your position in Jesus? And the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, how can you go and talk about a position you don't have? Make the decision. I asked him for time, Reese continued, but he said, you will not have a minute after six o'clock. It was exactly as a wild beast was roused in me. You gave me a free will, I answered, and now you force me to give it up? No, I do not force you to give it up, he replied. But for three years have you not been saying that you belong to me 
and that you wanted the Savior to own you completely. I climbed down in a second. The way I'd said it was an insult. I'm sorry, I told him. I didn't mean what I said. He said, you are not forced to give up your will, he said, but at six o'clock I will take your decision. After that, you will never get another chance. It will be my last offer, my last chance. I saw that. I saw my future for eternity going. Please forgive me, I said, I want to do it. Once more, the question came, are you willing? It was 10 minutes to six. I wanted to do it, but I could not. Your mind is keen when you are tested, and in a flash it came to me. How can self be willing to give up self? Five minutes to six came. I was afraid of those last five minutes. I could count the ticks of the clock. And then the Spirit spoke again. If you can't be willing, would you like me to help you? Are you willing to be made willing? Take care, the devil whispered, when a stronger person than yourself is on the other side. To be willing to be made willing is the same as to be willing. As I was thinking upon that point, I looked at the clock. It was one minute to six. I bowed my head and I said, Lord, I am willing. Within an hour, the third person of the God had had come in. And he says, I was transported into another realm. Now, please, as you've listened to this partial story, I want you to hear Jesus Christ is real, and he is not going to be satisfied with an American Christian who is compromised with darkness. He's not going to be satisfied with an American Christian who lives the good life and has this pet Jesus spray-painted, a rabbit foot, sentimental, but not real. God is looking for men and women who will, who will make that commitment. Jesus, I belong to you. Take possession. Have you made that decision? Please understand that if the Holy Spirit does not speak to you, it's because you have seared your heart with what you're watching in darkness. God speaks to his children. If God does not speak to you, it's because you have refused him time after time when he has spoken to you and called you to come. You have said, no, over here I have money to make. No, over here I have this interest. No, over here I have this. And you have run away from the Holy Spirit to go after the lust of your own flesh. You will never hear God speak clearly to you until you stop and say, okay, Jesus, I'll deal with you. And by your power, I will walk away from my sin, and I will seek your face, Jesus. And then it's going to take some time for the searing of your soul to wear away, for the Holy Spirit to carve it out of you. Some of you are so filled with cell phones and Internet and movies And the lust of your flesh, pornography, fornication, pride, some of you are so filled with the darkness of this world and the despair and discouragement of your own heart that you can't hear Jesus speak to you.
The only way that will change is for you once in a while, once and for all, to lay aside the American culture and become radical in your seeking after Jesus Christ. And then he'll speak to you. He'll speak in the word. He'll speak by the spirit. He'll speak in the preaching of the word. Entire sanctification has been utterly rejected by the modern American church. And we are reaping the harvest of wickedness in this nation because of our refusal to submit to Jesus Christ. And we've come to a point in American history where we can no longer afford the selfishness of a sentimental Jesus without piety, without obedience to Jesus. That day's over. The destruction of America has come upon us. We have a criminal enterprise that runs America. We are literally a nation taken over by gangs. And now we have to make decisions about will we walk clean in Jesus Christ and say no to the powers of darkness? Will we allow Jesus to take over our hearts and our lives? Will we say no to the entertainment of the world and yes to the glory of the presence of Jesus in our lives? I urge you this week, read carefully the book of Jude. Pray over it. I've read this book of Jude this week probably 50 times. It keeps cutting deeper. I urge you to read carefully 2 Peter. I urge you to read carefully 1 John. Let these words speak deep into your spirit. Now probably when many of you begin to try to read these books, You're going to be bored. I'll tell you why you're bored. Because you've been living on the spice of the devil. And so your tongue is seared. Your mind is seared. You can't taste the word of God. You can't taste its sweetness. You can't taste the love of Jesus expressed in it. You're going to have to do the same thing I had to do as a pastor when I finally turned and began to repent. You're going to have to read the word standing up reading it aloud so you don't go to sleep. It is the antidote to the poison the devil has pumped into your heart. So what is your decision today? Are you going to continue the childish, shallow life of the American Christian, walking in your sin, walking in your sentimentality? Are you going to grow up in Jesus Christ and say, okay, come and take possession, Jesus Mighty God, I've spoken your word honestly to your people today. Pray for your Holy Spirit to come. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray in your holy name. Amen.